the Books Podcast, presented by Tim Hague. Well, I'm sitting in the publishers of W.W. Norton with Nicholas Wapshot, who's an old friend of this site, and whose new book is The Sphinx. And we'd better do the, uh, the subtitle as well. It's Franklin Roosevelt, The Isolationists and the Road to World War II. And that's exactly what it's about. So let's start off with the title. Um, the Sphinx is obviously Roosevelt, FDR. Um, who called him that? Why? And was it fair? Uh, well, taking them back to front, I suppose. Yes, it was fair. Okay. okay. The Sphinx, of course, is that cryptic figure that no one ever quite knows why it's smiling or why it exists or whatever. So anyone who's called the Sphinx is a mystery. And what Franklin Roosevelt did was to keep on tenterhooks the whole of the Washington press about whether he was really going to stand for a third term, that is, the election of 1940, November 1940, whether he would stand for a third term, which would be unprecedented, and which the founders of the Republic, George Washington, and Jefferson chipped in, said that this was something no president should do. So Franklin Roosevelt felt he needed a third term because, as you can tell from the There was the a timing, bit of trouble going on. 1940, it was a key moment. He was anxious that if someone else took charge of the United States, the United States wouldn't enter World War II. They still hadn't entered World War II. It'd be going on for a year. And so he was very cryptic about it. He went into the Gridiron Dinner, which is the dinner of Washington Press Corps. Uh, every year in January they have it. They still have it to this day. And he went in, and there was... A six-foot-long, six-foot-high, papier-mâché, golden-painted model of the Sphinx with his smiling face on it and with his cigarette holder in it and with his pince-nez on. And he, of course, laughed his head off. He was, uh, he loved, well, first of all, he loved all sorts of flattery, but also he loved uh, taking the mick out of people. You say, you say at one point in the book that uh, more than was true for anybody else. For, for FDR, the presidency was him. He was, he was utterly comfortable in that situation, wasn't he? Yeah, and I can't think of any other president really f- you could describe that of. Uh, sorry, that was rather clumsy English. But the, yes, he, he wore the presidency like a, a comfortable old sweater, if you like. And he used the White House genuinely as a private house. Uh, it was full of his children. Uh, Eleanor worked out of the White House. And Harry Hopkins moved in one day and didn't move out. Exactly. He, he was unwell. Harry Hopkins, he came in and just stayed. And there are all sorts of people lingering around. The, it, during the war, as the war went on, uh, all sorts of visiting royalty were put up in the White House too. I mean, just treated it just like his country house in Hyde Park in New York, which of course was a big, not so big actually when you get there, but it's a rambling house for the an old school Toff's house, if you like. We'll come to the isolationists shortly um, and do a couple of them, but um, one, of, one of the worries that the isolationists had and that quite a lot of other people had was that uh, Roosevelt was drawing more and more power to himself and was becoming a dictator. And, of course, they knew all about dictators because they could see them across, the, across in Europe. Um, and, um, I mean, from a purely constitutional point of view, they had a point, didn't they? They did have a point, but the Constitution, of course, is pretty vague. It is designed not to work very well. The executive is separate from the legislature, which is Congress, which is separate from the Supreme Court. And those three wings of office fight each other. It's quite the opposite of the parliamentary system. You have to have a majority or cobble together a majority of the legislature in order to become the chief executive. But the chief executive in the United States is separate. And the powers were never quite delineated. And in the 18th century, of course, a lot of 
powers you couldn't expect to be delineated because they hadn't arisen yet, you know, various things that could be done. And yes, they were worried about it. They're worried about that today, you know. I mean, it, it remains a great fissure between the left and right in the United States about whether there should be a government at all. And to have a president who took more and more powers to himself. And he, FDR wasn't averse to drawing more power to himself. Absolutely not. After all, he became the president in 1932, and the first two terms he spent licking the New Deal. I mean, you know, he and that, to the extent that in his second term, the Supreme Court actually did rule to say that he'd, he was out of order, that he'd taken all sorts of powers so he, he should never have had. It. Exactly. So, which didn't stop him at all, thank goodness. Uh, for getting involved in World War II, which there was an enormous reluctance in the United States to have anything to do with another European conflict. After World War I, they only lost something like a quarter, I say only, a quarter of a million compared to the many, many millions that the French and the Germans and the Brits and the Russians lost in World War I. But even that quarter of a million was too many for most Americans. I was going to ask if, if America ever really did uh, mobilise for war in the same way that, uh, that some Europeans did. Somebody once said that the Germans didn't. They had this housefrau idea, so they never put the women to work in the factories the way we did in Britain. Uh, what about America? Did, did she mobilise as fundamentally as, as the European nations? Oh, absolutely. In the end, again, this is all to do with the executive action. Franklin Roosevelt... Uh, did deals with private industry. So, for instance, General Motors went wholesale over to producing tanks. It stopped making cars altogether. Even Ford, who actually was an isolationist. A, a, and, ram, and, and, a, a big isolationist, and as you point out, a big, uh, big anti-Semite. Anti-Semite. used to ran, run a, a free newspaper, an anti-Semitic newspaper. He used to distribute through his Ford dealerships. A big stack of them in the corner of the showroom. Now, he, he wasn't in day-to-day in -day control of his company anymore, but he still had the influence to, to make his son, the ridiculously named Edsel, yes. um, uh, do what he wanted. But in the end, of course, money, business, commerce overruled um, principles. Ford, Ford who was a great anti-communist, had great factories in the Soviet Union too, so he always put business first. That's one of the things about uh, a number of particularly American uh, quasi-political -polit uh, public figures and that is that all those rich men who run America today, the Koch brothers and so on, who sign checks in order to have their opinions, when it comes to it, actually, they're interested only in the business. Rupert Murdoch, for instance, people think of him as a great conservative tyrant, which he is, but on the other hand, uh, you know, he also will get into bed with Tony Blair or anybody else. He, he's just interested in getting his business ahead, and that's what so many, it turned out in this pivotal, in terms of the history of the world, a pivotal battle between totalitarianism and democracy. It came down to a number of businessmen putting business ahead of their own sneaky totalitarian thoughts, I think. There was opposition, of course. There was isolationism. We're going to talk about, in particular, the, the two um, most colourful figures that you follow in the book, although there are lots, and, and you tell us about uh, all the movements, by, which, by the way, I really love. I, I love the intrigue and the, the diplomacy that goes on. But let's start off with Lindbergh, Charles Lindbergh, the most famous aviator in the world, because he was the first man to single-handedly cross the Atlantic. Um, he, he was a damn nuisance, wasn't he? He was a pest, yeah, to put it mildly. He was a sort of um, Kim Kardashian. He actually hadn't done very much. <laughs> He'd sat in a plane, actually. He was a very good engineer. Uh, but apart from that, uh, he hadn't achieved very much. But this was the beginning of worldwide celebrity. It was the beginning of the radio. It was the beginning of mass uh, media in general. And so on both sides of the Atlantic, he was considered a really big deal. 
And so people took notice of his views as if they mattered. Uh, Although he wasn't, I mean, how bright was he? He was wrong about almost everything. He was, he, he, he was, he was also anti-Semitic, of course, and he was uh, taken in by the Nazis. He didn't look behind them at what they were doing. But he was, he was wrong. I mean, in, in 1940, you, you report him as, as <laughs> standing up saying, you know, the, whether, whether America enters this war is completely up to us. It really wasn't. And the Japanese showed that at Pearl yeah. Harbor. And, yes. he, he, and uh, oh, Dorothy Thompson, you quote as, uh, from the New York Post, as, as calling him a, a, a somber cretin, I think <laughs> it was the phrase she used, which, which is lovely. Um, was he just not very bright? Uh, I think he was simple, which is, might be different. I think that he was capable of, I wouldn't say lucid thought, but he was capable of argument. Uh, sort of more P.G. Woodhouse than Lord I Exactly. I don't, I don't think he was a wicked person, or at least didn't set out to be a wicked person. He, his father was a, also anti-Semitic and a, a big isolationist, so he sort of inherited lock, stock and barrel, his views from his father. It's a bit like uh, Rand Paul and Ron Paul, actually. They're, they're quite similar in that sense. And the, uh, the, the, not only was he armed with this sort of gullibility, if you like, he was a sort of innocent abroad. He was sort of Pinocchio character, you know. And he was not critical when he should be, that he wasn't using his brain when he should be using his brain. Because he was the world, world's most famous flyer, he was taken around uh, by Goering, <laughs> or Goering's pals, it's certainly partied by Goring, and shown the new burgeoning and totally illegal under international law air force that Germany was building before the war. And he reported back. He thought he was doing the right thing by reporting back to the American embassy. He actually took American embassy people with him. Uh, but actually, he was being duped. The fact was that the Germans were flying planes from airport to airport to airport. And so... Uh, to persuade him that they had lots. They had lots. Because he, he, he got and his figures wrong all the time. All the time. And so, so when he went to Cliveden, for instance, the, the greater Pisa's nest, uh, half an hour out of London. The Nancy Astor set, yeah. Exactly. Uh, which is where he would meet uh, Geoffrey Dawson, the, the appeasing editor of the Times, and uh, all sorts of people. Uh, in the government, he would frighten them to death by saying, my goodness, I've just had a tour of the German airfields and they've got thousands of planes. So, and he kept, he said in public too, there's absolutely no chance that Britain could survive a, an onslaught of the Luftwaffe as it it's currently consisted. So, yeah, he, he himself was duped and it went wrong. But it didn't stop him, of course. I mean, that's, that's <laughs> the other thing. Shut up. You know, exactly. Mostly people in a hole, you know, when to get something wrong, you know, they... They would shut up, but it, but he kept on and on and on. The each of these isolationists. One of the wonderful things about this story is that Franklin Roosevelt just waited his time, like an angler or something, or in this case a sniper. He waited for them to wander through the crosshairs and would zap them. Um, it took a little time to entrap uh, Lindbergh. Actually, he did it by putting him in uniform and then telling him, "Excuse me, but you're part of the United States Air Force now, so you can shut up." And that's the end of it. But he wriggled out of that, too, and they kept trying to put him in and out. And he ended up, strangely, of course, in the South Pacific, where he actually flew combat missions against the and, Japanese. And it had a distinguished war in the Exactly. End. Strangely. Yeah. I mean, it was kept secret. And as soon as anyone found out, he was immediately shipped stateside. Uh, and by the way, he was only doing it for fun. I mean, I don't think that, well, maybe he had some, he had some bizarre racial theories. 
And it might be that the Japanese were the sort of people he, he thought he was entitled to kill, but I mean, he had that sort of notion about people. And so maybe it wasn't so bad to shoot Japanese film, but for him it was a lark. What he liked to do, really, he was a test pilot above all, uh, which, which is a particular mentality, I think, when you actually get into a very strange machine and then take it miles up into the air to see whether it works. I mean, I think <laughs> that, it's not for everyone. Though. Take a certain kind of man. <laughs> and uh, so I think that maybe a lack of imagination, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> anyway. Uh, well, you, you, you tell us that Senator Bora um, approached him uh, be in 1939 to, to stand for president in 1940. At least he had the wit to know that he wasn't up to that. Uh, but, I mean, how... What I really want to ask is, how dangerous was, was um, Lindbergh? Oh, if he'd been on his own, uh, not dangerous enough, easily dismissed. But there were too many people just like him, I think. So that there were a bunch of maybe 10 prominent isolationists in all, who really, as today in America, single very rich men can push public opinion around pretty easily if they want to. And so... I think Lindbergh on his own wasn't too much of a danger, and my goodness, thank goodness he didn't have any charisma or any organizing power. I think the isolationists... And wouldn't join as well. The America it, First, the organization... I mean, wouldn't America even join America First, exactly. Yeah. To, to, to be their chairman. Yes. But, uh, he, but he was very much a loner. I mean, flying alone, I don't know how many hours it took him, something like 14 hours or something across the Atlantic. You do know, because it's in your book. 33. Thank you. 33. Uh, 33 hours across. I had across to look the... him up as well. He didn't die till 1974. Of course, he was young. He was 25 when exactly. he did. Exactly, he was the, a kid. The, yeah. the, the, the Boyfish. So, I mean, he died at 72 in 1974. He lived to see all of all of the aftermath. Absolutely. Of and there was no mea culpa. There's, there was no... No, because he did his own his autobiography, didn't yeah, he? Yeah, and uh, endlessly he would justify himself as opposed to saying, I got some of these things wrong. And his wife didn't help too, Anne Murrow, who was a, actually a very nice but also gullible woman. And she, she wasn't as stupid as him, though. Uh, no, or, or do I you think, think she I, was. No, 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 no. She was but, not but, nice. She was. She was naive. They were, yeah. you know, I, you know, a lot of people get caught in great events. But the, the astonishing thing for Lindbergh, of course, is that he was so young and he was quite prepared to defy the president of the United States. I mean, that takes a lot of gall. Speaking of rich men. Hmm. We move on to Joseph Kennedy, um, the father, as everybody will know, of uh, President Jack Kennedy. But, but you rather, rather sweetly, you never say who these people are when they come in. When, uh, and, and so you never refer to you know, the future uh, of, of, of the peripheral characters. Joseph Kennedy, you tell us all about. And he, he was an amazing uh, individual as well. He ended up um, being sent by Roosevelt to... England to be the ambassador to Britain. How? I mean, that's, that's the, the, the weirdest appointment you can think of. It, it just yeah. blows your mind. Yes, the, Joe Kennedy was the most prominent democratic isolationist. And one of the tricks of the Sphinx was not to say whether he was declaring or not. And Mrs. Clinton, Hillary Clinton, right now is doing exactly the same trick. She is saying, I've got nothing to say about the presidency. I'll let you know later if I'm running, if I am and I'm not even telling you whether I'm even thinking about running and so on. And as long as that happens, it means that no one else can raise a cent. United States runs on monetary politics. I've here. heard that. Yes. So the bigger the checkbook, the more likely you are to win. And of course, um, Kennedy had the money to run without raising any. He, he was fantastic. These people yeah. were unbelievably that was the, That was the danger. So Franklin Roosevelt could choke off all the other Democrats because 
until he declared they couldn't raise a cent. But, Frank, uh, but uh, Joe Kennedy, of course, was well armed with money. He made a fortune on the stock market. He made another fortune in Hollywood. He had enough money that not only he and his wife Rose, but all of his many children had trust funds, which meant they would never have to work a day in their lives. And this money, he thought quite rightly, I can, you know, I only have one life. I could do with being president. A Catholic he was, which was unusual. Uh, there had never been a Catholic president, and wasn't to be a Catholic president until his son Jack. But he thought that if ever a Catholic could become the president, it would be in, in the unusual circumstances in which he could stand saying, I am determined to keep the United States out of the war that's going on across the Atlantic. And he never really got his chance because uh, I live in the United States now and I watch all these people. They need to collect a whole number of things before they can really set off. One, the most important is foreign policy experience, mm. however trivial, you know, a trip to Venice will do it almost. <laughs> and in this case, uh, Joe Kennedy persuaded Franklin Roosevelt that if he could go to London as the ambassador, uh, that would be jolly useful. And after all, it was a critical time. The, the war was... But Roosevelt uh, fell upon this as a starving man upon food, didn't he? Because it got, it got Kennedy out of America. Exactly. Well, if, first of all, of course, he said no. And then he slept on it. And then he thought, what a great idea, because I can, it was rather like putting Lindbergh in uniform. He's now a government employee. I can send him over to the other side of the Atlantic and I can keep him swinging in the wind. And he just refused to allow him to come back and resign. As much as Kennedy wanted to. As much as he came back, you, you, by the way. He would actually come back. I mean, he, Kennedy would sulk. He would go to his compound in Florida and he would hang out there with a, with a lot of old Ken grumbling Kennedy had people. something to sulk about. His, his, his uh, yeah. position as ambassador was a purely political dodge, wasn't it? Yes. Uh, Roosevelt was, was using other channels to get his information. He, wasn't, he, was, he was keeping things from Kennedy. He was not treating him properly. Roosevelt was not, being, uh, was not playing the game at all with Kennedy. Not at all, no, no. Roosevelt intended from the very first place, and it was part of their relationship, and it had always been, that he was always making fun of him and always humiliating him. That is, Roosevelt was always humiliating Kennedy. Kennedy, of course, was a, a, a poor Catholic from Boston, which is, you don't want to be. You want to be a wasp if you live in Boston. And he'd done very well. He'd married the mayor's daughter, and he would, you know, he thought he did, he'd done pretty well. But he really couldn't be, just in terms of, don't believe Americans who say there, there's no class in, in America. There is. And uh, so little Joe Kennedy, the Catholic boy, little Irish boy, uh, could not really trounce the uh, impeccable credentials and wealth of Franklin Roosevelt, who was a natural Dutch-born uh, patrician who'd always come from uh, money in New York. He'd, by the way, Franklin Roosevelt had enough money, trust fund, $1.4 million in today's money per year without doing anything at all. And that's leaving aside the fact that his mother was also rich as Croesus and would buy houses for him and so on. I mean, the, he was comfortably well off. Uh, it's, it's today, it's the same. American democracy is largely about uh, very rich men battling it out between each other about who can play the game more efficiently. Well, class, of course, means that Kennedy gets uh, inserted into London society and he becomes a part of the Clifton set as well mm. and loves it. And mm. he feels... Finally, he feels accepted until his, his, his defeatism uh, puts him in bad odour. And then he thinks, what's well, got? They've gone all anti-American on me. <laughs> Whereas they'd just gone anti-Joe, hadn't they? 
they'd gone anti-Joe because uh, Joe Kennedy could never resist telling the Brits what they didn't want to hear, and that is, you're going to lose the war. Of course, he was turned out to be completely wrong about that, not least because the Americans finally came in. But uh, he was blunt about it, and he would say it at the grandest occasions. You go to white tie dinners where he would give a speech and make everybody miserable by saying, you know, you may as well enjoy this last couple of years because uh, you're not going to be here. And that it was, he was blunt about it. But he, you're quite right that he was seduced, and maybe that's part of being, you know, a poor boy made good. He was not only fell in with the Astors, for goodness sake, if you're an American, the Astors are rather more important than, than royalty, but he also fell in with royalty. Uh, he would, you know, he, he came to the conclusion, he was gullible too, maybe. He actually thought that when King George VI and Queen Elizabeth uh, befriended him, that they were actually genuinely befriending them. I think he misunderstood the Constitution. Their function in life is to do what the state needs them to do. And if you're told, be nice to the American ambassador, because we need America to come into the war, then they do that. And they did that. But he felt somehow that he was close to the king. Well, the strange thing was that in the brief visit that uh, King George VI and Queen Elizabeth made to uh, Hyde Park and stayed with Roosevelt, actually Roosevelt and the king did in a very short time, strike up a rapport. But Ro the, Roosevelt had a genius for that, didn't he? Oh, I mean, you, oh, you also uh, get into the relationship between Roosevelt and Churchill, and yeah. Roosevelt was just brilliantly good at handling people. He was, yeah. Which was, I must say, it's one of the great delights of writing a, a book about somebody like Franklin Roosevelt. And the previous one was about uh, John Maynard Keynes, who was always a delight, my last book. But every day I could uh, at least think, well, I'm going to spend some happy chuckling hours with Franklin Roosevelt because he was a very droll, very dry sense of humor and just a very nice person. I mean, when he was having a martini, I would sort of pour myself a martini. You know, he was a, a very sort of biddable, enjoyable fellow. And uh, he was Sphinx-like. I mean, he never quite, I don't think his wife ever understood him particularly, nor he, her, you know, by the yeah. way. But... Uh, I think he was a mystery to most people. He was a bit of a loner. But uh, my goodness, it came in very straight. He liked to be liked, and, uh, but it puzzled people. You know, they would go in with a complaint and they would leave convinced about a totally different issue. And the complaint was never addressed. And he was, uh, he was also a master politician. He obviously just enjoyed manipulating the game, you know, which is interesting because there are not many of them who can do it. Uh, President Obama, for instance, can't do it. He really cannot play that game. He can't go for a game of golf. He can't have a drink with somebody. But Which somebody, Clinton, Bill Clinton, had the, oh, well, he the would, feel yeah. for it. He yes, was the best yeah. of his generation at that. How are, where are we now? I mean, in, in, in terms of isolationism, um, is mm. it fair to describe President Obama as, as an uh, isolationist-minded? He's, he's not wanting to get into wars. He's not wanting to go and confront. Mm. Um, and, and, you know, one feels that a, a, an era has ended in American politics and that, that it's respectable to be isolationist well, again. Well, yeah, if you think what's happened, though, since 2001, since 9-11, we have... The West has, but particularly America, they've paid for it all, in, both in people and money, two long wars mm. in Iraq, 10 years, Afghanistan, 14 years. Two ill-advised long wars. Yeah, um, well, at least one of them was unnecessary. You could argue the toss about Afghanistan. Well, somebody should have read a little more history in yes. the Defense Department, I think. The State Department told them not to do it, but the Defense Department, this is Donald Rumsfeld's war. We could have told them. The we Russians could have told them. Have told right, them. Exactly. There are lists of empires them. that have collapsed on, on Afghanistan. Uh, and I think that an American voter today could quite honestly think 
So we spend all this treasure, we've spent all of these lives, we've got lots of boys with one leg or one eye or one arm or whatever, and where exactly has it got us, this intervention? And I think that in the way that prime ministers uh, and presidents tend to uh, always respond to the person who's just left the office. I think following on from George W. Bush and his buccaneer, his adventurous approach to foreign policy, it was time, uh, quite rightly, he was elected, by the way, in order to dampen this stuff down. We don't, you know, let's not get involved in every last, you know, two-bit squabble that happens in the Middle East. Thank let's goodness he didn't go into Crimea. Yeah, absolutely. Anyway, I think that what... He, his is something different from isolationism, though. I think that whereas you might call him a minimalist, that is, we're going to do the, the least we can possibly do, and we're also going to pretend that other people are doing it if possible. Let's get the French or the Brits to, to head up these things, like Libya. But a, an isolationist, and there are some of them around, and they're, they're growing. They're people like Rand Paul, who says, you can tell an isolationist today in the United States because they start off saying, first let me make clear, I am not an isolationist. <laughs> and then they will list you all it's the like things. some of my can... best friends are Jews. Exactly. <laughs> Absolutely. Or gay. What exactly? Yes. The, and the, so what they, 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 they couch it in other terms. They, they say, uh, we shouldn't spend so much money on foreign aid. You know, there are enough things that we need to be done here. Uh, we, we should bring as many boys home as possible because we need the money. That is what called, might be called sort of fiscal isolationism. That is to say, we need to get the debt down, so why don't we stop spending money abroad with boys in uniform or on helicopters and all this other expensive uh, toys for boys that the military uses. Of course, what they then don't explain is if you bring all the boys home, all you do is fire them. That's the only way you can ever save any money. If you're just going to bring them home to America, then they carry on spending, you carry on employing them. So they're... There's certainly on the back of George W. Bush a great chunk of the Tea Party who are just, they're irritated about Wall Street and everything that happened to that, and they're irritated about everything that they believe that the, uh, the war machine, the commercial war arm of uh, the United States economy, it has Congress in its pocket. And uh, so they're not very happy about that. And it'd be very interesting to see how far Rand Paul will push that. The, the general wisdom is that isolationism still to this day is one of the great triumphs of Franklin Roosevelt. You can't be an isolationist today and be taken seriously. It'd uh, be interesting to see whether he shows his ankle as a little bit of an isolationist, at least during his presidential rumble. Well, the book is The Sphinx uh, by Nicholas Wapshot. It's published by Norton at £18.99. Nicholas, thank you very much. Great pleasure, Tim. Thanks very much again. That was The Books Podcast with Tim Haig. The Books Podcast is produced by Green Shoot. You can find out more at www.green-shoot.com and Tim can be contacted on tim at green-shoot.com.